Good morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles or your device and turn on over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to, we're going to continue from there. As you're flipping through the pages or you're scrolling through your device, let me ask you a quick question. How many of you have ever heard the term imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome. So some of us. So here's what it is in case you're unfamiliar. Imposter syndrome is a psychological occurrence in which an individual doubts their skills, knowledge, talents, or accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. So now that you know what it is, how many of you have experienced that imposter syndrome? Many more hands went up. You know, you know what's crazy is that at the heart of this is that relentless fear of being exposed even though there's no evidence that you're anything less than a professional. And what's truly ironic about this is that genuine frauds don't suffer from this. Those who really should be convicted over the fact that they are perpetuating a lie, they don't feel a thing. They're so self-deluded. As the cool kids would say, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid, right? They, they buy into their own hype. They're liking their own post on Twitter. They are so deluded into their own perverse way of thinking, they've bought into all that they're espousing as truth. And the same can be true of spiritual imposters. Spiritual imposters, you know the type. You probably see them on TV or maybe they get a lot of views for their sermon clips online. Maybe you work with some because they're preaching a different gospel. Maybe it's something that is radically different than what you hear here. Or maybe it's really similar to what you hear in this church, but they're tacking on little ornaments, their own little decorations. It's a, it's a sermon of Jesus and. These are the people that Paul was warning the church at Colossae about. This is who Paul was warning them about. Before he ever took pen to papyrus, he had these jokers in mind. This is who we got to be watching out for. These folks, they're a geyser of conventional wisdom and man-made life hacks to eternal salvation. They've got it figured out. These are the people who are attacking the Colossian faith. These are the folks who are saying, all you have is Jesus? Like, like for real, that, that's all you got is Jesus? That's all you got? No, 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 come here, come here. Let me hook you up with the good stuff. I will make sure you have what you really need. These are the people who question the sufficiency of our Savior, and they're doing it with a silver tongue. Paul said in verse 4, hey, guess what? Plausible arguments. Like, this isn't cockamamie. This isn't something that is absurd in one sense. It sounds almost true. It sounds almost true, but these, these imposters, these spiritual imposters are attacking the Colossian faith. That happens today, too. We're in the same boat. It might sound a little different, but we're in the same boat. Let's read Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not 
according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this word. Thank you for putting these words in Paul's heart to come through onto the parchment. Father God, thank you for preserving your word so that we can learn how, just like the church at Colossae, Faith Church of Linden has many people in our region, in our world, who have plausible arguments. They've got a silver tongue, and they question the sufficiency of our Savior. Father God, help us to learn what it is we're supposed to do when we're being attacked. In your name we pray. Amen. In the 1960s, for the first time, Italians were starting to get vehicles. They were getting cars. They could afford them. But their roads were treacherous. They were in dire need of modernizing. Their roads were small and winding up mountaintops, and it was just a mess. And with its artistic and innovative design, the Morandi Bridge connected all the tourist areas in the north with the hot spots in the south. They did that in 1967. Finally, it was a little bit easier to get things done and to go see people through this new network of highways. But on the fateful morning of August 14th, 2018, hundreds of lives were destroyed. You see, there was a torrential downpour and some of the southern cable stays of that bridge snapped, which caused the western side of this bridge to collapse. Nearly 40 cars and trucks plummeted 150 feet into the river below and onto the nearby streets and railroad tracks. And if that weren't bad enough to make matters only worse, one of the bridge's three A-frame towers crumbled, adding to the chaos. An independent investigation later on would go to say that the reason this happened, the reason that 43 people died, 16 people got injured, and hundreds of lives were shattered, never to be full again, was because of the corrosion of the steel cables. And how did that happen, you might ask? Well, it's because there were micro-fractures in the structure that allowed water and salt air to get inside and corrupt from the inside out. Warnings, though, had been going on for years leading up to this tragedy. 
employer organizations and engineers alike sounded the alarm. They called this, quote, a structural disaster. Even the guy who built the bridge said, hey, y'all might want to take a look at that because I don't think that's going to do so good in a couple years. And they ignored it. They cried aloud that the bridge was not sufficient. It lacked structural integrity. No one should be driving on this. It's going to turn out bad. Lives were lost and families were fractured because folks continued to place their trust into something that was not deserving, something that was insufficient. They trusted in the materials of the bridge. They trusted in the architect of the bridge. They trusted in the governing body whose job and sole responsibility it was was to make sure that this thing is safe. Ladies and gentlemen, our object, the object in which we place our trust is of eternal consequence. And Paul knew a thing or two about that because he said that for Christians in his day, just like it is true for us now, the object of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to tell us in this passage that because Jesus is sufficient, and that is irrefutable, because Jesus is sufficient, we as Christians should continue our Christ-centered life. We should counteract our would-be captors, and we should celebrate our victory in His. There's the sermon. You want three points? There they are. It's in your handout. Let's get to work. In verses 6 and 7, you see what it means to have a Christ-centered life. Now, that's a buzzword. It's almost Christianese at this point. What does that actually mean, Pastor Jason, to say that I have a life centered on Christ? Well, according to Paul, he's going to tell us that if you have a Christ-centered life, you have a firm foundation. I love Paul. I'm not a huge fan of him mixing metaphors, but that's between me and him. He's mixing three metaphors to give us adequate mental pictures of what it means to have a firm foundation. Paul's talking about walking, rooted, and then, of course, to be built up or established in. So let's hit these ones in rapid succession. Walking. Paul's audience would have had in mind the straight and narrow. The straight and narrow that Jesus preached about. We're going to head on that in just a minute. It's this clearly marked out path that has a beginning and an end, and it's the one they're already on. That's why Paul says, continue, right? Got to keep on the path. It's the straight and narrow. This is a path that has clearly defined markers and boundaries. Don't turn to this side. Don't go over here. Stay the course, brothers and sisters. Stay the course in Jesus. Remain on the course. Continue walking to avoid destruction. Stay on this path. Then Paul's talking about being rooted. You know, deep roots are important to the integrity of a tree, right? Like our modern-day marvels, the mighty sequoia, Paul wants his readers to have their roots sunk down deep into the source of life so that they can have the structural integrity needed to weather the storms. The truth is, when you have roots sunk deep into the gospel truth, you have a sufficiency of support to face the onslaughts. And then Paul continues to move along. He's not spending much time on any of these, and he talks about being built up and established. This is construction speak, architectural speak. And if we know it was true of construction workers today that we have to have the right materials and we have to make sure we have a firm foundation, then you know it was insanely more important back in Paul's day because we have technology and machinery that allows us to make very quick corrections if we start to get out of line. We can adjust things. I think back in the 80s, they even adjusted the degree by which the leaning tower of Pisa was leaning because it was too unsafe, so they could correct that. 
Paul's day, they didn't, they didn't have that. So it was paramount that you have the right materials and that you have a firm foundation. Going back to the world-famous sermon of Jesus is in Matthew 7. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares, Matthew 7, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall. It weathered the storm because it had been founded on the rock. And then Jesus pokes his finger in the chest of the mighty bear of the false teachers of his day and says in verse 26, these spiritual imposters, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. The sand was insufficient, no structural integrity. So if we have a Christ-centered life, we have in our possession a firm foundation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says another outpouring or another thing that works itself out of a life centered on Christ is an abundance of thanksgiving. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians haven't always been viewed as the most content, happy people. And what a shame. Because as Christians who have been given everything needed for righteousness and salvation, who have been forgiven everything, past, present, or future, what do we have left to complain about? The hallmark of a Christian life is thanksgiving. A life rooted in Christ demands thanksgiving. Beginning with the fact that he died for you in your place, because it wouldn't work out so well if you died in your own place. The fact that he has forgiven you, that he shed his own blood to purchase your salvation. From that all the way to the fact that he has promised that one day we will be with him again in heaven. That he will come again, he will rescue us, we will be reunited with him. And everything in between, we have myriad reasons to be thankful. And you know what? Every reason you can think of for being thankful is a way in which you can see the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior. The Colossians would have picked up on this. They would have remembered hearing about Jesus' teachings. They would have remembered that Thanksgiving was a working aspect of the Christian life. That's not lost on us in modern times either. We know this, we just struggle to obey sometimes. A famous missionary to China I'm sure you know who I'm going to refer to here. Hudson Taylor, once writing to someone in need of encouragement, he said this, Go forward in the strength of the Lord and in the sufficiency that comes from him alone. And thank him, get this, thank him for your conscious insufficiency. For when you are weak, he can be strong in you. Brothers and sisters, isn't that amazing? That when I am weak, he is strong. When I am insufficient, he is supremely sufficient. When I can't cut it, he cuts it twice. This is amazing. This is great cause for our own thankfulness that he not only is sufficient, but that he helps me to see that I don't need to be. That's not on me. That's not what I was designed for. That's not what you were called to. As soon as we're able to declare for all to hear that we can't save ourselves, 
then we're ready to have a conversation about the one who can. So let me ask you this morning, what are you rooted in? Christian, what path are you walking down? What are you building your entire legacy on? What is your salvation being built upon? If it's anything less than or anything more than Jesus, Son of God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I know this because of what Paul says. He says, go forward. Sorry, he said, continue in Jesus. Notice he didn't say, as you received good works, so continue in them. As you received money and therefore tithe, continue in that. As you received self-sufficiency, never bothering or burdening anyone. He said, as you received Jesus, continue in him. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, that's not the message of the world. That's not the message of the world at all. We can hold our head high without fearing where we're going to spend eternity because we have a sufficient Savior. Paul says Jesus is sufficient, so we need to continue in Christ. We need to continue a Christ-centered life. But he also tells us that we need to counteract our would-be captors. You see that here in verses 8 through 14. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Opponents of the sufficiency of Christ pose a very real and very present danger to the church at Colossae. Like I said, they've got silver tongues, they've got plausible arguments. What they're saying sounds reasonable. They're not saying something as silly like, oh, like, just tap your little red shoes together and say, there's no place like heaven, there's no place like heaven, and then you just get there. Like, that's, that's silly, that's crazy. No one would buy into that. What they're saying is reasonable in one sense, which is why Paul gets a little serious here. Because we read this at face value and it says, see to it that no one takes you captive. But what Paul is saying is, look out! Hey, pay attention, look out, I see that over there, do you see it? Do you see this? You better watch out because if not, they will take you away like plunder in the night. They will bind you, they will chain you, they will haul you over their shoulder, they'll put a bag on your head and you're gone. Do you see that over there? Because I see it coming. I hope you do too. You have to watch out. This is a very real danger. What's the danger? The danger is bad doctrine. And if you're not familiar with that word, that's fine. Doctrine simply means a belief or a set of beliefs. There's good doctrine and there's bad doctrine. And Paul tells us there's some doctrine that we need to invest in, things that we need to cling to, things we need to anchor our life on, doctrine we need to continue in and build upon in Jesus but there is every other doctrine not according to God's tradition that is man-made, and we need to reject it. We've got to keep our head on a swivel, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't just come from outside the church. Sometimes it comes from inside. Maybe people in your small group, you don't know. Somebody says something, and it's almost true, and you're not sure. Did, did they mean what they said, or did they just misspeak? Because that happens. We've got to have grace. So there's some doctrine that we need to counteract what is the doctrine that we have to counteract? Paul tells us it's philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Essentially, anything that's not according to Christ. The message of the cross 
is sufficient. It is also very simplistic, and people don't like that. Because if, it, if it's really that simple or that easy, I don't like that. It doesn't give me enough confidence. I want something that's a little harder to understand. I want something that just gives a little bit more meat on the bones. That's not what Paul wants his Colossian friends to buy into. He needs them to be aware that there's a danger He gives us a whole list of things that were going on in Paul's time, and some of these might still be going on today, but I was looking at this list this week, and it looks like a new jingle for uh, some legalistic lucky charms, because throughout the letter he says, circumcision, food and drink laws, festivals and new moons, Sabbath asceticism, and worship of angels too. Man, that's some bad cereal. But this is what they're going through. Somebody who says, well, I, you got Jesus, but you need to cut the foreskin. I don't know, you got Jesus, but you can't drink that. Oh, no, no, you got Jesus, but hey, remember, you know, three and a half weeks, we got that new moon coming, you better be at my house for the party. Oh, no, 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 you can't worship on the first day of the week, got to go back to the Sabbath, because that's what we did in the Old Testament. People who are thinking asceticism, like, oh, I just need to deny myself to show that I'm a real Christian, I'm going to fast. That's how I'm going to show that I'm legit. I'm going to fast, I'm going to torture myself, I'm going to become a miserable person. Oh, hey, what about worshiping angels? And I look out here, and none of you are phased by that because you see this list for exactly like what I see it as. It's ridiculous. None of us are going to buy into that. And that's good because we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church teaching that has warned us against silly laws like this. But I'm going to hit a little closer to home just a little bit. The thing is, Paul wants them to know that a rules-oriented life is not a life of freedom in Christ. It's it's a life of legalism. It's a life of man-made religion. Yes, a lot of the things they were talking about in that time were tied to Israel in the Old Testament. But Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow isn't the Savior. The Savior is the Savior. All of these people were trying to take Jesus and add on their own little spin so that they could earn it, so that they could feel good about themselves and say, hey, yeah, I got the Jesus thing, but I also have tithing. I also have circumcision. I also have the celebrations. I also have the food and drink laws. I also have the ceremonies. Paul tells us that to counteract our would-be captors and their deceitful doctrine, we must remember Christ for who he truly is and what he's done. And we need to trust his doctrine. So what kind of doctrine should we be looking out for? What's the doctrine that Paul wants us to remember and cling to? Well, starting in verse 9, Paul starts in rapid succession. Boom, 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 driving it home. The doctrine of Jesus of this, he says in verse 9, For in him the full of deity dwells bodily. God is fully God and fully man. Jesus lacks nothing. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Everything has been placed at his feet. He has been given everything. Christ alone is sovereign. There is not one thing or one person who is greater than he. Verse 11, in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Spiritual circumcision where Christ cuts us and removes the power of sin in our life. 
is so much better than anything the Israelites were doing with scissors back in the day. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, the prophecy is fulfilled. The woman's seed has stomped. He stomped the head of the serpent. The temple was rebuilt in three days. Amen. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. You could do nothing because you were dead. 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 What do spiritual people do who are dead? Nothing. We could do nothing. It is Christ alone who saves us. It is God who makes us alive. This is the doctrine that the church had been teaching for about 20 years leading up to the letter right there that Paul's writing. Two decades of Paul's teaching and the gospel teaching. It's going out and yet people are still confused. They're still getting tripped up. Is it any surprise that 2,000 years later, the church has still been teaching the same doctrine? And yet, those spiritual imposters keep on trying to find their way in, trying to find a way to add to Jesus, trying to get just the smallest fracture in your faith to allow water and salt air to get in and corrupt from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, in the face of flagrant attacks on our faith, and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, we need to anchor our faith in the Word of God. If it's not in this book, we have to question it. We have to hold firm the sufficiency of Scripture and our Savior. And it seems like the more these would-be imposters attack the more we can reflect on history and realize there's nothing new under the sun because it doesn't matter what age you live in, whether it's 500 and some odd years ago in the time of the Reformers or it's in today, today's day. We're tempted to pollute the clarity and the sufficiency of Jesus. We really are. In the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church for many, many years had really devolved to the point where the Christian was held captive to the teachings of the Catholic Church and their sacrament system. And they would go to the church to find out, hey, church, am I, am I good before God? And if not, they would go to the church so that they could get the grace that only Christ could provide. Thankfully, the good doctrine, solus Christus, Christ alone was front and center during the Protestant Reformation. You've likely heard about this. Likely with Martin Luther and his 95 Theses, Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is where we find our value and our worth. You know, there's a famous painting of Luther in the city church in Wittenberg where he's standing in the pulpit preaching and he's pointing to Christ on the cross as if to say, Jesus alone. Believers should look to Christ alone. Luther said the cross alone is our theology. That's our doctrine. And boy, did that shake the empire. That was an affront to everything the Catholic system stood for. Solus Christus was a log in their eye. They hated it. But the reformers continued to drive forth 
the true doctrine of Jesus and try to reclaim the church. And in so doing, they spent many years trying to scrub away the graffiti that man had added to the gospel. They chipped away at man-made traditions. They focused on Christ and his person. And they declared for all that his work alone on the cross is sufficient for salvation. So brothers and sisters, Paul needs us to know we have to be vigilant. That's why he used such strong language as if we might be taken captive. We might be hauled off like plunder in our thinking. That doesn't sound like a game of hide-and-go-seek. This is real. Paul wants us to be prepared to counteract our would-be captors who are looking for a way to take us. But like I alluded to earlier, you're thinking, Jason, I'm not going to go do circumcision. I am not going to come to church on Saturday. I am not going to do all of the ceremonial laws and the cleansing and all that. Like we just sang the song, the law was never good enough to save us. I believe that. So what's the big deal today? Well, I'm, I'm sad to say this is something we all struggle with. For a lot of us, it's Jesus and. That's our doctrine. Hey, you know what I'm clinging to? You know what's, you know what's going to make me eternally secure? You know how I know I'm going to go to heaven? Because, well, yeah, I, I got Jesus, but I check my box every morning. I've spent 30 minutes alone with God praying and reading my Bible. I've done that for 13 years straight. I've never missed a day. For someone else here, it's going to be, yes, I'm saved. Jesus is great, but you know what? I mean, I don't mean to brag, but uh, you see what I pulled up on Realm? This is my year-end giving statement. I am independently the reason why we can afford those two extra missionaries. It is because of me. I know that. I mean, no one else knows, but I, I know. I know. Someone else here is thinking, yeah, Jesus, that, that's why I'm eternally secure because I have Jesus, but but I'm really a lot more proud of and I have a lot more faith in the fact that I stopped looking at porn. I stopped drinking in the closet when my kids are a handful. Yeah, Jesus is great and all, but guess what? I'm in 13 small groups. I lead two of them. I homeschool my kids. I put my kids in public school so they can be salt and light. It's all of this Jesus and And what's sad is that it sounds almost true because those are good things. Good things to do or good things to stop doing. There are so many biblically mandated things that are wonderful and in fact commanded of Christians. But as soon as you add to Christ, you've lost. You can't have Jesus and. You've got to have Jesus alone. So that's what our concern is today to fight that Jesus and mentality. And how do we do that? Well, I like what one commentator said. He said, the antidote to false teaching is the proof of Christ's absolute supremacy and exclusivity. So what's the proof? I submit to you this morning, the proof is the blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 1 John 1.7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Brothers and sisters, the proof isn't in the pudding. The proof is in the blood. It's the blood of Christ alone that had the power to blot out our transgressions. Paul says, if 
we're going to continue having a Christ-centered life, if we're going to counteract our would-be captors, we have to know we have to trust in Christ and Christ alone. But he doesn't stop there. He also lets it be known that we should be celebrating our victory in his, verses 14 and 15. In that last section we looked at, I'm going to make this quick, I'm going to try. Last section we looked at, Paul writes, in him or with him a total of six times. Whenever you see in your daily Bible reading, anytime you hear in a sermon, words or phrases or ideas repeated, it's like God beating the drum. I want you to carry this beat with you for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, for the rest of the month, in him, with him, in him, with him. God has done so much with and through Jesus Christ. And if we are solely trusting in Jesus as our Savior, we're not adding on, we're not subtracting from, we are in Christ alone, then the victory that Christ has purchased by the shedding of his blood is our victory too. The Christian message has always been countercultural to everything the world has ever said or taught. True victory, brothers and sisters, is only found in full surrender. You catch that? True victory is found only in full surrender. We surrender to Christ he fights the battle. He wins. What does he win over? What does he win against? Well, essentially, he's winning over sin and death and hell. And he's doing that in verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was the Holy Son of God who had to die so that we might be covered with his blood to cover our shame. And this alone was powerful enough to purchase our salvation. Jesus alone, nothing else. Throughout Scripture, we get gruesome accounts of what Jesus was going to go through and what Jesus did go through. Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The nails that pierced my Savior's flesh are the final nails in the coffin for sin and death and hell. And I know that because of the very specific language Paul uses. Now, in our modern-day translations, a lot of us are rocking ESV. That's awesome, good for us. We have in our Bibles the word canceling. But that's an English word used to translate a Greek word that I can't pronounce, but essentially means blotting out or wiping off. And we're like, what does that even mean? I have an iPad. It's delete, the backspace button, Jason. I don't know what you're talking about. No one's going to wipe my iPad. That's right. If we think iPads are expensive, try to imagine how expensive it would have been for papyrus or vellum, things that had to be made from natural resources like animal skins or reeds. And so to save a little bit of money, when someone was maybe a courier or a messenger or a scribe, they would have special ink with zero acid so that the ink would rest gently on top of the paper, papyrus, volume, whatever, and it's resting so that they can use it again. They can just wipe it off and use it again. It's like uh, the ancient version of a dry erase board, all right? So they would have it. Here is all of the words that I'm going to say, and this is the charge I have against you. And God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to use the language of blotting out. Imagine standing in a courtroom, 
And the list of all of your charges, all of the laws that you did not keep or all of the laws you broke from the Old Testament. And you're in a court of law and God's like, well, I see the list. Oh, hang on a minute. And Jesus goes over there with his blood and wipes it all away. And then God says, well, if there are no charges, dismissed. No charges. It was standing against us. All of our sin was standing against us. In a legal setting, we were guilty. We had no business to even try to negotiate a plea bargain. We were guilty. Not just one eyewitness. The entire host of heaven could have convicted us with their eyewitness testimony. But by the power of God and the nails piercing his flesh on the cross, the record of our debt was canceled, wiped away, blotted out, existing no more. Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation for us, not because of the great stuff we've done, but because of Jesus Christ and how he has set us free. We also celebrate not only victory over sin and death and hell, but Paul also has in mind rulers and authorities. No doubt in Paul's day, people were a little more superstitious. I think that's fair to say. Sure, you might not like it to break a mirror. Maybe you don't like how a black cat crosses your path, but these folks were wigging out all the time over all of the things. And if you didn't do it according to just this way and not getting the orders out of line, it's going to go bad for you. They were a very superstitious group. And if anything bad happened, they felt like they were being attacked by gods or invaders or all sorts of messed up theology. In verse 15, though, it's a very important statement on the sufficiency of Christ and the victory that he won. He said that we have victory over the powers that opposed him. And when Christ was resurrected, he neutered all of his opponents. I mean, he laid the smack down more than John Wick against a one-dimensional bad guy. He disarmed them. And then he paraded them through the streets. This language of triumph is is amazing, but it's also lost on most of us as modern-day readers. In the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire, when a conquering army and a victorious general would come back with the spoils of war, they would enter the gates and they would have a parade. Not so that people could say, oh, yeah, good job, you did an awesome job like we do after the Super Bowl, but also to take their captives and parade them through chained naked, a lot of times, having their sin and their shame exposed for everyone. How humiliating. And these men would just be waiting their final blow, but before that, they'd be paraded through the town. What's the language we see here? Pretty much the same thing. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The powers the demons, the false gods, anything like that that's attacking the church at Colossae has been made a laughing stock. This is cause for great celebration, brothers and sisters. We have victory in Christ. Now our victory is apparent in very clear ways. We have power to win, right? We've got We've got a Savior who fights on our behalf. That's in a mighty, mighty power that we get to claim. And we have victory over the power of sin. We're no longer forced to sin. Those bonds have been broken. We have victory over the penalty that was against us. We're no longer condemned even though we know we're still sinners. 
And probably my favorite part, the victory that we have already, but it's not yet showing itself, is we will have victory over the presence of sin. Because when we're taken to heaven, when Christ rescues us, there will be no more sin. Gone, obliterated, completely gone. You know, Jesus, he never suffered from imposter syndrome. He just didn't. He knew that he was the Savior. He knew that he was sufficient. And we know that too, and yet sometimes we're still tempted to try to tack on. It's much the same way it plays out after you've done some research on a big ticket item. Right? You've checked all the reviews, you hopped on Tom's Guide, you looked at all the Amazon reviews. You, it's a big ticket item, so you want to see it in person, and you go with buying one thing. That's all you have in mind. It's sufficient, and it's not going to break the bank. What more could a guy ask for? It's sufficient, going to get the job done, and I'm not going to have to you know, sell my left arm to afford it. But you get on the showroom, and here comes the upsell. And you can't blame them. They're just doing their job. But they use their silver tongue, they use their persuasive arguments, and they convince you that you'd be stupid to walk away with anything less than something that costs several hundred to several thousand dollars more with all of the high-tech gadgets and upgrades, all of the bells and whistles. It even comes with an app. And we think, me likey. I want that. Not because I need it, but because I want to feel better about myself. I feel so much better about myself if my truck has an auto start or heated seats. I feel so much better if my dishwasher can send me a text message and tell me it's time to put them away. I feel so much better when I have the full list, when I don't have the plain Jane model. I feel better about myself. Now I've got something to brag about. And isn't that the most damning lie that we start to buy into when it comes to our spiritual credentials as well? I can't brag to anybody about Jesus because he did everything. But I could try to convince some of you that because I teach or because I give or because I do this, that, whatever. You could do the same thing to me. We could start to try to one-up each other and feel good about ourselves because at our core, yes, we're sinful humans and we want to feel self-important. We want to feel like we've got some skin in the game, like we've done something to deserve this. Nobody wants a handout. Brothers and sisters, we better want a handout. You better not be clinging to what you came to the table with. All we brought to our salvation was our sin so that it could be forgiven. We need that plain Jane model. The sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture tells us that Jesus alone is salvation. There is nothing else that we could add to it. If we have Bible time and awesome year-end giving statements and we have faithful marriages and we're raising our kids right and we are sacrificing to meet the needs of others and we are avoiding sin and running to Scripture, those are great. That's commanded by Scripture. But if you are adding that to Jesus, you got to stop. That's a danger that's all too real for all of us to slip into. Because it's in vain. Those are good things. Don't stop doing the good things. Don't start doing the bad things. But brothers and sisters, don't add them to Jesus. Don't add them to Jesus. Some of you might be here and thinking, I don't even have a Jesus to add to. In fact, all I was counting on is the fact that I got baptized. I took a dunk. I got a Bible. I'm trying to read it. That's what I'm clinging to. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus at all, or you find yourself convicted thinking you're trusting in Jesus and whatever the thing is, fill in the blank. Let me ask you politely, let me plead with you, don't leave this room. This morning, don't leave before crying out to God and casting all of your sin at his feet and asking him to forgive you. 
he will do it. He will forgive you. But you say, oh, no, Jason, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my history, man. You don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been charged of. You don't know what I've done time for. It's okay. I don't need to. Not yet. Maybe ever. God knows. And he's already willing to forgive you. Cry out to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. The Bible tells me that he will do it, and he's faithful and just to do so. And if you're here this morning and you say, Jason, I'm already saved. And I, and I really don't think, honestly, Gina, I ask the Holy Spirit to search me. I don't think I'm trusting in something else also. It's just Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Continue. Right? Don't, don't quit. Don't rest on your laurels. Continue in that Christ-centered life. And keep your head on a swivel. I don't know where the enemy is going to attack you next, but you've got to be ready to counteract your would-be captors. And then all the time, even in the valley, even when life hurts, and you know, life hurts so bad sometimes. We need to celebrate. We need to celebrate that I got victory. I'm going through it right now, but man, oh man, I got victory. I've got Jesus because our sins in the past, they're forgiven. Our current situation is covered by the blood of God. And anything and everything that I could ever do, ever, it's the same message we give our kids. It's the same message Jesus gives to us. You cannot do anything bad enough to make me turn my back on you. I love you. Everything that I could ever possibly do, Jesus has already forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your son. Thank you, Lord, for the nails that pierced his flesh because they also closed the coffin on the power of sin and death and hell and Satan. What a bittersweet thing to celebrate that your son had to die for us. But thank you for including us in the victory, Lord. Thank you for welcoming us with arms wide open. Thank you for telling us time and again throughout your word over the centuries, over the millennia, that if any of us would confess with our mouth that Jesus is king and that we would ask him to forgive us, that you are going to, that you will do that and that you are sufficient, Lord, because we know that only you are able to bear the burden and weight of our sin. Only you have the sufficiency to blot out all of our transgressions. Father God, thank you and praise your name. Father, help us to remember this truth as we sing. In your name we pray, amen.